BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, February 5th, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com and on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Inquiring Minds fans, there's another science podcast that we think you would enjoy. It's called The Story Collider. Every week, they present a true personal story about science in people's lives. Sometimes it's scientists talking about crazy adventures in the field or heartbreak in the lab. Sometimes non-scientists telling stories about a brush with scientists that changed them forever. You can even listen to my story on there. Or mine about how I met my husband with science. Mine was about going to a nuclear reactor. For science stories, funny, sad, and everything in between, go to storycollider.org or subscribe in any podcasting app. This week's episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly to you. To get $50 towards any one of their obsessively engineered mattresses, visit casper.com slash inquiringminds and use promo code inquiringminds. So how are you doing with your New Year's resolutions? Pretty terrible. Yeah, it's uh, February. It's over, right? We don't have to <laughs> we can we can put the charade aside and get back to our normal lives, right? I mean, I'm having a beer while we're recording this podcast. I think New Year's resolutions are long behind us. Actually, I'm not doing that terribly, but it, it's not going I'm behind. I'll just say that. <laughs> So yeah, this is usually the time of year when people say, ah, you know, I was never really meant to be that great at whatever it was that I set my New Year's resolution. It must be I didn't have the right genes or, you know, I just don't have the talent. But there's someone out there that thinks maybe you're just in the wrong time and place. So Eric Weiner is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Geography of Bliss. And his latest book is called The Geography of Genius. He's a longtime foreign correspondent for NPR and has um, published in other media outlets as well. And so I wanted to talk to him about whether or not we can find a geography of genius. Is there actually a special recipe that a particular time and place has that cultivates genius? I'm really interested in how he defines genius. I have, yeah. a, I have a personal je- definition. <laughs> What's your personal definition? Well, it's just called the mirror, of course. Um, <laughs> no, I, like I, there's people that I see as brilliant and I call them genius because they they strike me as so over my head in terms of their line of thinking and how quickly they process things. But outside of those, like, but that's a, f- a, wor- a word that I use rarely about those few people that stick out to me. And I never think about the conditions around them that make them special. So what I think is really interesting is now we equate genius with creativity, which wasn't always the case. It used to be kind of separable uh, before we even had this word creativity that we bandied around so much. And so psychologists define creative output as something that is not only novel, but also has some kind of usefulness as defined by the domain and that that's actually a key component of creativity. And a lot of people I tell that to sort of disagree or think that that somehow, you know, it makes the definition too narrow. But when we talk to Eric, I think you'll find that there's something else that's related to that that he describes as um, one of the key factors of genius. So that's our interview for today. But before we get there, 
I wanted to talk to you about one of the really positive studies that has come out this week that has made me think that maybe we are just that much closer to a cure to a devastating psychiatric disease. Have you heard about what's going on in schizophrenia? No, tell me. Yeah, so there are two lead researchers, Stephen McCarroll and Beth Stevens, who published a paper in Nature about a better understanding of the biological basis of schizophrenia. So schizophrenia, we know, has partly a hereditary component, but it's not entirely genetic because you can find monozygotic twins, not, not both of whom develop symptoms of the disease. But it also seems to be related to something that happens at particular times in people's lives. So, for example, when I was an undergrad, I actually was involved in a study that looked at the hormonal effect of uh, early periods um, in young women uh, and, and how that might predict symptom severity in patients with schizophrenia. And it turns out the earlier you get your period, the more severe your symptoms can be um, when, if, when and if you do develop uh, the disease. So... In this case, these researchers thought that maybe the illness was linked to a process that happens around adolescence, or at least it has its last steps around adolescence. And that's the natural process of synaptic pruning. So, of course, your brain is made up of about 86 billion neurons, give or take a few. I mean, you probably just killed a few with that beer that you're drinking. <laughs> More than a few. <laughs> Actually, you probably didn't. Um, but in any case, of course, we know that the real power of the brain is in the connections between neurons. And this is why we have a physical barrier between our bloodstream and the rest of and our brain, unlike in other parts of our body where our immune system can go and, you know, attack our cells and get rid of cells that are in infected with foreign invaders, so, right? So you're saying that the this pruning can run amok. We can over prune. Yeah. I mean, I hadn't even gotten there yet, but um, <laughs> I was still talking about the immune system. But anyway, yeah, we can skip ahead <laughs> and talk about the fact that um, we can't just kill neurons in the brain because they hold on to our experience from, from our earliest days, right? So we can't not, like our skin cells, which regenerate, we can't regenerate all of our neurons all the time. <laughs> So instead, what we do is we go through this process of pruning where the brain gets rid of weak connections between neurons as it matures. And in this study, it turns out that people whose genes accelerate this process have a greater risk of developing schizophrenia. And so this, this explanation also fits in with the illness often showing up in young adults as people with schizophrenia would have by then over pruned their neurons around this time. So does this suggest that we'd be able to identify risk in that's, patients? That's exactly what it suggests. It means that if you could do a genetic test, you know, either in the womb or, or shortly thereafter, to help identify people who are at risk for the disease. And then if we can identify these people, we can make sure that a lot of the triggers of the disease don't happen to them. To the extent that we can, of course, because these triggers are often, you know, things like early emotional traumas and, and so forth. Or, um, But you know, at least the doctors involved in, you know, treating some of these patients might be able to see some of these potential risky, you know, environmental um, factors and, and hopefully mitigate the onset of the disease. I think that's awesome. Hopefully the test is reliable and easy to administer because it's not clear who will need to take this test because it sounds like we wouldn't be able to identify an at-risk pool to take the at-risk test. Well, you could look at people that have uh, a family, yeah, history family history of schizophrenia, yeah. of course. Um, but yeah, I agree too. I mean, there's also a kind of an ethical question that comes into this. Is this is this going to be something that is going to lead people to want to terminate pregnancies if their uh, fetus is carrying the gene? And I, you know, I think here we get into the murky waters of you know the ethics of of that kind of information coming online. And we talk about this a lot with the twenty three and Me, the yeah. information it provides. But that's still very positive that so, we even yeah, have something predictive. Definitely positive step in towards understanding schizophrenia, which is a devastating disease. Um, and there is also a positive step in terms of understanding something that is not nearly as serious as schizophrenia, uh, but has cultural, I don't know what would you call it, cultural waves that it, it can make. Uh, it's, so popular, you know what I'm about? it's popular in Us Weekly, if, <laughs> if you're talking about that being an important part of culture. Yeah. So if you're not following us yet, listeners, of course, we are talking about resting bitch face. And resting bitch face, let's be upfront and clear. First of all, that's a ridiculous name for this, but it is what it's called. Uh, and this isn't, this is that sort of pouty, contemptuous 
you know, emotionless almost look that uh, are ascribed to certain celebrities. Uh, both men and women, Kanye, Kristen Stewart, have been known to have this. Uh, why are we talking about this? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, a lot of people who have resting bitch face feel that they are, you know, sometimes they can be discriminated against and people interpret their resting face as being critical or contemptuous, as you said. Well, it turns out there is a company called Noldus Information Technology, uh, and they developed something called the Face Reader, um, in which they it's a software program, a facial identification one, that they built up using 10,000 or more images of human faces. And so what it does is it uses about 500 points on the face, and it assigns each image of a face one of eight basic human emotions. So happiness, sadness, anger, fear, surprise, disgust, contempt, or neutral. Neutral is an emotion? Okay, I'm going to let that one slide. A lack of emotion. In any case, the lead researchers, Jason Rogers and Abby Macbeth, wanted to inject a little bit of humor into science, uh, but steady resting bitch face. So what they did is they put in a whole set of expressionless faces into their reader, and about 97% of them were registered as neutral, but 3% had little bits of emotion. And then they took three canonical RBF quote-unquote all-stars kanye west Kristen stewart and queen elizabeth oh poor poor queen M- my queen by the way i am canadian <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out that putting in just those three faces doubled the amount of emotions that were read by the program and that the biggest change came in the emotion of contempt so it turns out that yes resting bitch face is real it's measurable and it gives people the idea that you find that find whatever whatever we are doing contemptuous i wonder what would happen if they put in martin Chicrelli into there what kind of quantification would they get it would just break the computer probably oh, is there maybe another category resting douche face <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> all right so <laughs> with that let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with eric weiner This episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. They produce an obsessively engineered mattress, a shockingly fair price. This is a one of a kind new hybrid mattress. It gets shipped right to your door in this box. They even send you a special knife that you cut it open and it just sort of sucks in air and unfolds beautifully. Plus there's a risk feed trial to check it out. Um, You can try sleeping on a Casper for a hundred days with free delivery and painless returns comes right to your door and to give you an idea of how much less they are selling for a twin size mattress is $500 and a king size one is 950 and to get $50 off towards any of these obsessively engineered amazing mattresses visit casper.com slash inquiring minds and use promo code inquiring minds once again that's casper.com slash inquiring minds promo code inquiring minds Eric Weiner, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks, Indre. Happy to be here. So usually when we start a conversation about the science of creativity or genius, we begin with a definition. But in your book, you kind of turn that whole premise on its side. And you suggest that we shouldn't necessarily be as curious about what creativity is, but where it is. So can you tell us how you came upon this new way of thinking about genius or creativity? Well, uh, I should say right off the bat that I'm a place person. So I come to it with that perspective. You know, they're, they're dog people and cat people, and I guess they're people people. And I'm a place person. I see the world through the prism of place. Uh, and it struck me that this is one area, creativity and creative genius, where we've largely ignored the whole question of place. And that strikes me as odd because it's so important. Um, We're so focused on one of two myths about creativity. Uh, Myth number one is that the creative person, the genius, if you will, uh, is born, that they just pop out of the womb, fully formed, composing great music, uh, calculating uh, amazing numerical equations or whatever it is. Uh, Myth number two is that the genius is made through hard work, the 10,000-hour rule, which you're probably familiar with, that you need to just sweat it out, 99% perspiration, 1% inspiration, and all that, and that is how genius comes about. Um, But we, uh, we ignore a third possibility, and that is that the genius is grown in the soil, and that the soil, i.e. the place, 
really matters a lot. And so you sort of started your book talking about Athens and that being sort of a a cradle of creativity in terms of our the very birth of our civilization. Is that an accurate? Is that do you think that that's where we should start in Athens? Or was that, you know, where we started? Because that's, that's the information that we have. That's a tricky question. Um, you know, I had to start somewhere. Let's put it that way. And, you know, I suppose I could have started uh, with the ancient Egyptians or, or someplace else. But in terms of recorded history, you're right about that. Uh, Athens seemed like the right place to start. You know, might there be some civilizations out there that were fantastic and incredible and filled with geniuses that we know don't know about? Absolutely. But one of the points of my book is that you can't separate the creative act from the recognition of the creative act. And uh, let's face it, the ancient Greeks, and particularly the Athenians, are recognized uh, as geniuses. So why do you think it is that we see Athens in particular as being full of geniuses? Is it just that we don't have the record from neighboring places or... You know, or or is there, you know, I guess that's where I, one of the things that always every time you, you described a new place in your book, part of me was just wondering about like, well, what about that kind of remote place where maybe there were a lot of people doing really creative things, but it didn't last the test of time? You know, how do you sort of reconcile the fact that we're looking back with history? Yeah, I would say those places that didn't stand the test of time are not places of genius, just like the person who doesn't stand the test of time is not a a genius in our minds today. Um, What I'm suggesting is a slightly radical approach to how we consider the whole question of creative genius. You know, we have this very romantic idea of the undiscovered genius, that they're toiling away and that they're producing incredible stuff, but no one appreciates it, no one sees it. I would argue that without that appreciation, that part of the puzzle, that they are not a genius, that it really takes two. It takes a creative act and it takes a recognition of the creative act. So if there are people in places out there who have done incredible things, and I'm sure there are, and we're not around to recognize it and to appreciate it and to call it genius, then in my book, it is not genius. And so that means that definitions of genius or, or sort of labels of genius fluctuate with time as as things go out of favor. Someone who... Right. Yeah. So... Yeah. I, I call it the fashionista theory of genius for a good reason. And that's because genius is like fashion. Is there good fashion and bad fashion? I mean, the 1970s, everyone thought leisure suits and wide ties were good fashion. <laughs> you know, now we know better. Um, so... Uh, I realize it sounds kind of capricious, like, you know, is is genius just sort of a a whimsical thing? You know, hopefully, you know, we get the fashion sense, so to speak, right. And and we choose people like Mozart and Einstein, who have done something new and surprising and glorious. Um, But we don't always get it right. Hopefully we do, but we, we don't always. So one of the things that I've been really interested in is the idea of musical talent and does it exist? And it's it's similar. It's related to this idea of genius. But what I've kind of come to the conclusion about this is that talent really is what we label what we don't understand yet about ability or about, you know, eminence and so forth. And in some ways, genius sort of saves the same serves the same purpose. You know, we can talk about the genetics of things that we can measure, like, you know, height, or even to some extent, some forms of intelligence. And or we can talk about certain aspects of nurture, you know, that kids need a lot of stimulation when they're younger in order for their brains to develop properly. Um, But it always seems like there's that kind of unexplained special sauce that people label talent. So to what extent do you think that filling in some of these geographical boundaries or or conditions might help us get rid of this notion that genius is something mysterious or, or unexplicable like talent and become more explicable? I mean, do you think that that's yeah, a possibility? That's a good question. It's a good question. Um, I should start off by saying I think we really kind of enjoy the mysterious element of talent and of creative genius. Um, You know, I say in the book that geniuses are the secular world's gods. And and I really do mean that, that, you know, someone like a a Steve Jobs uh, more recently, uh, we we adore him. We uh, idealize him uh, in a way people idealize the gods back in in Greek times, for instance. So I think that mysterious thing that, oh my God, we don't know why 
Jobs was so brilliant or why Mozart was so brilliant is uh, something we enjoy engaging in and something that in a weird way lets us off the hook. Because if it's mysterious or if it's genetic and we don't control our genes, for not, at least not yet, um, then we can say, well, you know, I don't have any musical talent, um, so why bother trying to play the piano or the violin? Uh, now, where's the remote? Let's see what's on the cable, you know. Um, that's very convenient. But um, I think you're, you're on to something that place might take away some of the mystery for better or worse. Uh, but I think if you, you know, plot where geniuses have appeared over time on a map, they don't appear randomly. There's it's like there's one in Sausalito, California, and, and one in Des Moines, and one in La Paz, Bolivia. Um, they appear in, in groupings, in genius clusters. And that can't be a coincidence. You know, Mozart, who's held up as the poster child for the genetic theory of genius and talent, you know, and sort of as you were alluding to, the epitome of the mysterious genius that we just can't explain. You know, he wasn't born in any place at any time. He was born in Austria at a time when it was really the, the place to be uh, for music. So that can't be a coincidence. I do think that place does fill in a lot of these blanks that you're talking about. So I want to get into some of the characteristics of these places that are seem seem to be seen across all of them or many of them. So yeah, I have my own list of ones that I took from your book that I think are important. But why don't we start with what you think is maybe the the single most or the couple most important conditions under which genius can flourish? Okay. Uh, first of all, coffee is not one of them. Let's get that right off the bat. The, the Greeks and the Florentines had no coffee, which makes me admire them all the more that they produce so much art and philosophy uncaffeinated, amazing. Uh, so scratch coffee. Um, but in seriousness, I would point to, if I had to point to one thing, and this applies actually both to people and places, it is openness to experience. Um, that's actually a term from psychology. And unlike most terms from psychology, it's completely understandable to lay people. Openness to experience. Um, that's true of a person who's creative. They're open to the other, to other ideas, to the foreign and the strange. And that's true of places. They all had a certain outward orientation and a receptivity. Um, that was true of Athens, where they sailed great ships and borrowed lots of ideas from foreigners or stole them, if you like. It's true of Florence during the Renaissance, where they actively sought out these ancient Greek and Roman manuscripts uh, and treated them like the treasures that they were. And it's true of Silicon Valley today, where just to give you one statistic, uh, half of all Silicon Valley startups, uh, one of at least one of the founders was not born in the U.S. So that that one trait alone, and I have others, but that one trait alone, openness to experience, explains a lot. And in some ways, openness to experience can be cultivated. And you talk about one way in which we can boost our own creativity by observing other people violate schemas, you know, these kind of conceptual frameworks that we develop over time, because we see that some things happen in a particular way, often, like, for example, and you're in the book, you talk about we eat pancakes for breakfast. But if you watch someone eating pancakes for dinner, that kind of violates your schema and, you know, can sort of make you think more creatively. Is that do you think that that's part of the effect of these societies that are a little bit more open to newness that they in fact, encourage people to think that way? Yes. And it's not always happening on the conscious level. Um, and it's not as simple as, oh, a foreigner arrives with a foreign idea, and then that foreign idea is imported wholesale into the new culture. It doesn't work that way. I think a, a good example might be eating with a knife and fork. Um, now, let's say that you've only eaten your food with a knife and fork. You have no idea that there's any other way to eat food. And then along comes someone from China eating with chopsticks, and there's someone from South India eating food with their hands. And you go, huh, well, that's a new way of eating food and never occurred to me. Now, chances are you're probably going to stick with your knife and fork, but you have been opened up to what I call the possibility of possibility. And on some level, you're going to think, well, if there's a different way of eating food, maybe there's a different way of doing math or writing a poem or whatever it is. So I think that the, the effect that these open policies, immigration, et cetera, have on the creativity of a place are 
are subtle and not always, um, well, not always obvious, in fact. So that brings me to another question that I kept wondering about as I was reading your book is the extent to which you distinguish the way some psychologists do big C creativity from little c creativity. So this notion that there might be something fundamentally different um, with what people like Einstein and Mozart and perhaps even Steve Jobs do, that those of us who just want to boost our everyday, our little c creativity really will never get at, you know, by just doing these things that make us think outside the box. Did you encounter this distinction between the eminent creatives and the sort of everyday creativity? And do you see if they're... Yeah. yeah so, so what do you think about that? I mean, it, it's a distinction that psychologists make uh, between, as you say, small C and big C creativity. You know, big C creativity is Mozart composing music or really any composer composing music, Einstein doing physics or any physicist working on particularly creative problems. Small C creativity is, you know, you've got to jerry-rig your printer because it's glitchy and it's not working properly or, or you know, you've got to cram five kids into a minivan that only seats four. Um, it's the sort of everyday creativity that we all engage in. And when I realized with my travels, and I did travel to all these um, genius clusters, uh, is that there are some cultures that require more small C creativity from us, um, places really, like Calcutta to this day. I mean, one uh, Bengali writer there told me, you know, look, I've got to be creative every minute of every day just to get through the day, just to get things done. Now, the question, and I admit it's a question I can't fully answer, is that whether using those smaller creative muscles, small C creative muscles, will help limber you up for big C creativity. Um, I don't know, but I will add that, you know, many a genius, including Einstein himself, uh, have engaged in creative acts outside of their main area of focus. Einstein, for instance, played the violin and played it pretty darn well. And if he was stuck on a physics problem, he would often retreat to his study and pick up the violin and play, and sometimes he would get unstuck. So I, I don't know if there's a, a direct connection, but it seems logical that if you take small steps in your everyday life toward being more creative that that might on some level transfer to the world of big C creativity. So I guess I'm wondering if you ever encountered places that encouraged a lot of little C creativity, but didn't produce any big C creativity, or if it seems that in every case that you studied, you know, they really seem to be correlated. Well, that's a, I, I see what you're saying. Uh, I would say probably the best example today is China. Uh, where there is a, a fair amount of small C creativity required, uh, well, to log on to Facebook or Twitter, for instance, you know, which are which are banned in China because of the Great Firewall of China, as it's called. And it flummoxed me when I was there. I couldn't get onto Facebook, you know, the whole time I was there. All my Chinese friends were like, what's wrong with you? It's simple, you know. <laughs> we figured that out a while ago. So that's what they need to do, yet... Today, at least, is not true in the past, but today China is not the most creative place. Uh, and the Chinese wring their collective hands over uh, what they call the innovation gap, the fact that everything is made in China, but very little is invented there. And there, I would say there is a disconnect between small C creativity and big C creativity. So we talked a little bit about openness as being one of the conditions that fosters big C creativity. Um, but I, we, you also mentioned a number of others. And, and one I wanted to touch upon is the role of competition, um, which seems to, seems to be there for every one of the places that you describe. Um, and there's a, a bit of a, a messiness in the research on the effect right. of competition. So yes. let's talk about that. What It is messy and, th and there's a disconnect, you know, in between the um the real world and the the psychologist lab on this to be honest because What? I know. It's it's like mind-blowing. I've never seen this before, right? Um you know, so uh, in in the lab, uh, many labs at least, there's something called uh, the Intrinsic Theory of Motivation. And a psychologist at Harvard, Teresa Amabile, is the main proponent of this. And she's done many, many studies that show that uh, when we are freed up from the pressure to perform, we produce more creative products. You know, she will put a, a group of participants in 
the lab and half will be told to make a collage and that their collage will be graded and it'll be judged and the best ones will receive a monetary award, for instance. And the other half are said, you know, with the same materials, make a collage and just have fun. And it is in study after study, that second group that produces the more creative products. But in the real world, places like Athens and Florence and yes, Silicon Valley today, I mean, gee, competition sure seems to bring out the best in people, uh, not everyone, but many people. So how to square that circle? Um, I said most studies find intrinsic motivation to be the most helpful, but not all studies. And there's one study in particular that I find very telling. Um, it looked at really experienced creative people, in this case, musicians, uh, with at least five or 10 years experience. And, it, and these um, psychologists asked the participants to... Uh, Improvise, a jazz, do a jazz improvisation. Again, half were told just to have fun, enjoy. The other half were offered rewards of various kinds. And it was actually the second half of these experienced musicians who produced the more creative improvisations. And I think that the key may be that if you have experience, if you have mastered your craft, then yes, competition will help you raise your game. But if you're a novice, then that fear of failure is so great that the competition suppresses any creative talent you might have. And this, of all the conditions in your book, speaks to me to be perhaps the biggest difference between the big C and the little C. Uh, because in some ways you could argue little C, that's the novice who can be, can, you know, can be paralyzed by the fear of failure. So a little bit goes a long way. But in order to achieve the big C, you know, it, it gets harder and harder the more uh, you master a particular domain to get to the next level, right? The, the, the number of sort of geniuses gets, you know, tiny at the top. Well, to, to make that last leap from what we consider very talented to what we consider genius, you know, uh, that, that is tough. And, um, and it's not made by novices really at all. Um, and it's not made by children. I don't buy the theory of the child prodigy. I mean, there are children prodigies. What I don't buy is that, that they produce something truly original for the ages. They may amaze us with their virtuosity at a young age. Absolutely. Um, and a few like Mozart will go on to become genuine adult geniuses, but in fact, very few. And, you know, when I was first starting out, I, I sort of have a, a dual pathway in my career. I, I'm, a, I'm a performing musician, but, you know, I'm also a scientist and a science communicator. And people have always said, you can't do both. You have to pick one. And, and also, <laughs> and by the way, if you want to be a performer, you can't have the option of a backup. You know, you have to put everything in there because otherwise you won't have the motivation or, you know, the, the circumstances to really bring you success in that field. And I don't know if that's true necessarily, but I, you know, I wondered if there was something that you found in your geographical look at some of these places that suggested that, you know, in some cases, the people who became these geniuses, and I say became because I don't think they were, again, I, I do think they were made, in, at least in, in the way that um, you ascribe there's this combination of a lot of factors. To what extent was it, th were they forced to do that, forced to succeed in, in, in what they were doing um, versus having had other options? Boy, that's that's a big question. Um, first of all, I just want to say, I think it's very sad that people are discouraging you from pursuing multiple avenues, multiple talents. Um, and well, I, that I just is, didn't, I just ignored them. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, good for you. But that's hard to do, isn't it? Of though? Course, I mean, yeah. I mean, in this day and age, and, you know, I, I talk about in the book about the, the death of the Renaissance man and woman and why, you know, why we don't see someone like Leonardo da Vinci today. Well, it's pretty obvious, you know, based on, you know, what you've encountered. Can you imagine mm -hmm. Leonardo showing up at a university as an undergrad and saying, you know, I want to study fine art and also aeronautical engineering and military strategy, they would think he's nuts. They would send him directly to counseling services, you know, to sort things out. Or they certainly um, wouldn't give him a scholarship because they would think he no, wasn't serious. They think he wasn't, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think that the bugaboo here, the real Achilles heel in our culture is specialization. That... Um, it, it really, it, it, because I believe all creative genius is interdisciplinary. It is ultimately about combining, uh, seeing connections that other people don't see. And we're not really permitted to do that these days. I mean, we're really uh, discouraged from crossing disciplines. It's certainly true in the modern 
university where people build these fortresses of knowledge around themselves and defend them fiercely from any interlopers. Um, so, you know, if there's a reason why we see fewer creative geniuses like Darwin or Leonardo or others from centuries past, it's it's because of specialization, I think. And I was, you know, at a dinner party the other day with a friend who said, and we were talking about this, he said, well, of course there's more specialization today. The world's more complicated. I would argue, in fact, that the world's more complicated because there's more specialization, that the, the specialist sort of chops things up and, and divides them in, in ways that are not creative. And that actually brings me to another point that you make, which is one of the other conditions is that there has to be some element of chaos. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about that. What do you mean uh, by chaos and how can chaos make people more creative? Well, let's talk about Graham Greene and his cutting line about the Swiss. He once wrote that uh, f about the Swiss, 500 years of peace and stability, and what have they brought the world but the cuckoo clock? Um, in fact, the cuckoo clock's a German invention, so not even that. Um, I suppose there's some good chocolate. But Graham Greene was on to something, which is all these places, all these golden age, have a certain tumult to them. They have a bustle. They're all cities, first of all, with the exception being Silicon Valley, which is a bit of an outlier. Um, the rest are all cities uh, that are dense, that have the chaos of the Agora, the marketplace in Athens, or the Piazza uh, in Florence, or the pub of Edinburgh, Scotland, uh, or the coffee house of, of Vienna. Uh, places where people of different social strata and different ideal ideologies can come together and can have some serious chaotic conversation because we need stimulation to be creative. You know, this idea of just going going off into the woods is fine, and that's one way of getting in touch with your creative self. But another way is to walk a city street during rush hour with the hustle and bustle and to have things thrown at you and to be stimulated. And chaos does that. Another thing chaos does is it allows us to transition from one order to another, from one pattern to another. Um, and there was a neuroscientist named Walter Freeman who studied the brains of rabbits by hooking them up to EEGs and then introducing them to odors. Some of the odors were familiar to them, others were not. And when the rabbit was introduced to an unfamiliar odor, their brainwave, their EEG, entered in a chaotic state, what Freeman called an I don't know state. And that's that's crucial to enter that I don't know state, which is chaotic, uh, if you hope to enter some new known realm. So do you think we have to have an equal part of kind of stimulation and isolation, um, messiness and order? Or do you think that we need to go through periods of time when we immerse ourselves in one or the other? How 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 does that work? Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and the word that keeps popping into my mind is toggle, that the, the creative genius toggles. And I've seen this time and again. Uh, they toggle, for instance, between the countryside and the city. Beethoven, for instance, was a real city boy. He was a bon vivant, a womanizer, and a real slob. Talk about chaos. His apartments were so messy, he was always being kicked out of them by his landlord and lived in as many as 86 different apartments during his years in, in Vienna. So he loved the city, but he also would escape on weekends to the Wienerwald, uh, the forest uh, on the outskirts of Vienna, and go for long walks in the woods. And in some of his letters, uh, he, he was downright effusive about uh, nature and what he got out of it. But then he needed to return to the city to, I would say, consolidate those insights uh, and to get the acknowledgement of his peers and of his audience. So there's a lot of toggling that way, you know, having a conversation with yourself out in the woods and then resuming the conversation with others back in the pub or the coffee house. So um, absolutely, I think geniuses toggle between introvertism and extrovertism, between the countryside and the city between moments of intense concentration when you're just trying to actually finish a task and what the psychologists call incubation, you know, going for a walk. You know, Dickens was a huge walker, walked through the streets of London. Mark Twain was a pacer. Um, but sometimes at some point you've got to sit down at the desk and write, you know. Yeah. And in fact, I think sort of 
busyness, as it's become really a part of our current culture, can kill a lot of creativity because you don't have you don't have time to let things incubate. So I would argue, too, that it's not just about the space of, you know, being in one place or another, but the timing of the toggling that makes a huge difference. Well, we're, we're toggling really in a very narrow range. You know, if you're if you're toggling between the, the Facebook tab and the Twitter tab on your laptop or on your phone, um, you're not really toggling. You're 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 in a pretty narrow range, and I, yeah, I agree with you on that. So one of the other conditions is uh, this sort of thing that you call homospatial thinking. So can you unpack that for us? Describe what it is and why it's important. Yeah, this is a theory from a psychiatrist named uh, Rothenberg, I believe, and it's. Uh, the idea that we're more creative when we are introduced to juxtaposed contradictory ideas. In the case of homospatial thinking, it is actually visual images. In the case of what uh, Rothenberg calls Janusian thinking, it is antithetical ideas that are opposite, but yet we sort of hold them in our mind at the same time. And it, it really is this notion of being comfortable with opposites with uh, the incongruous and not having your head explode. Um, I think people in India are particularly adept at this, for instance, but people in all cultures can develop this skill. Um, and if you think about it, 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 it is important. The idea that something can be both a wave and a particle at the same time, as Niels Bohr's suggested, is an example of Janusian thinking, uh, seeing images of tanks invading a town and flowers in a field juxtaposed right on top of each other is homospatial thinking. And in studies, when people are introduced to these incongruities, then on creative thinking exams, they do better. There's something about it that, that sparks our creative juices. One of the other things that interested me is the extent to which uh, constraints are important for creativity. So sometimes we think creativity is all about plucking things out of nowhere. It's about openness, about chaos. Um, and yet that doesn't seem to be true, at least when it comes to little c creativity, in terms of how people produce output. No. And in fact, um, I, I believe that creativity is always, always a response to a challenge, right? And if, you know, if paradise did exist, uh, it would probably be the least creative place in the world, right? Because there would be no need to be creative. There would be no challenge to respond to. Uh, and you see this time and again, you know, Robert Frost, the poet, um, once said that writing free verse poetry uh, is like playing tennis without a net, you know, that you need that barrier, that constraint to work around, work under. Uh, and all these places I look at, all these genius clusters, they were all kind of difficult places. You know, Edinburgh, Scotland on the edge of the world, and it's cold and dirty and dark, you know, and Athens was actually a bit of a dump, you know, dirtier and and rougher than many of the other Greek city-states at the time. So it, it gave people something to push against, some constraints to work around. And in fact, um, at least one study in the lab found that, you know, when people are given fewer materials to work with, greater time constraints, et cetera, and say building a collage, they'll produce something more creative than people who are given all the time in the world and all the materials that they need. In other words, people with more constraints were more creative. I think that's really ironic, given the case that a lot of us artists are finding that people don't respect our output and don't want to pay us for it. So that's a big conversation among artists is, you know, how do you deal with a person who says, hey, come and, you know, give a talk or play your music or send us some graphic design um, and you'll get a lot of exposure for it, but we won't pay you for it. <laughs> is... Imagine trying that with your plumber. You know, my toilet's backed up. Come <laughs> fix it. I can't pay you, but, you know, I'll write nice things about you on Angie's list and it'll be really good for you. Your business. Um, yeah, but people say, look, but you love what you do. It's so much fun. Like you're, you would do it right. anyway. Well, that's the finding that sweet spot of intrinsic and extrinsic motivation that I think is key. Um, you know, Mozart loved composing music as well, but he hardly ever, ever composed anything without a commission, without knowing who was paying and where and when it would be played. So uh, even the great Mozart. Um, would not have worked for free like that. I'm sure probably the biggest backlash you've had to your book is your 
you're choosing Silicon Valley as being sort of the modern day uh, golden age or golden place for creativity. I'm sure you've gotten a lot of pushback from people um, about not that. From, not from people in Silicon Valley, though, I might add. <laughs> Imagine <laughs> aren't that. You, aren't you out there in Silicon Valley right now? Oh, yeah, I think you're or, totally right. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, so, okay. So I don't expect any pushback from you. No, no, not at all. <laughs> all right. Totally objective, by the way. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting was, you know, you talk about how, look, there are a lot of ways in which Silicon Valley has changed humanity forever. And that triggered a, a series of studies that I read recently about how Google has changed the way we remember. You know, it's, it's literally we no longer necessarily focus on the content of the information, but where we can look for it. You know, so we, we concentrate on search processes now as opposed to content. And for many people, that's the end of remembering. But you know, it also reminds me of um, Socrates, right. you know, writing about how the invention of writing was going to be the end of memory. Um, well, he was he was right to some extent. We don't remember as well as as they did back then. But of course, he was wrong about it sort of killing our intellectual instincts. But yes. Well, right. I, I don't know that he was wrong about that. I mean, <laughs> you know, I think we are intelligent, but <laughs> I, I don't know how much more intelligent we would be. But but certainly we can now study brain regions that are dedicated to writing. And we will in the future study brain regions that are dedicated to Googling. Um, it, it is a fundamental change that we're going to pass along. Uh, but it also comes, you know, to, to bring, uh, you know, a lens to the fact that our brains really are adaptable. And there's going to be a lot of change changes. So, you know, I don't see it necessarily as as being a, a there's no turning back. You know, we might we might come to a point where we realize actually dialogue is way more important than you know, writing or or having a, having a, a a record. So, I would agree with you with respect to Silicon Valley on that point. Um but what other what what if what if people had taken issue when you've talked about Silicon Valley? What do they say or 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 have you have you found um ways in which you're you're not completely sure that it's going to have a lasting impact the way Athens has. But look, if if you look around the world now and you were to say, you know, where is our Renaissance Florence? Where is our classical Athens? You would have to say Silicon Valley. I mean, yes, there is some creativity coming out of Berlin right now. I think that that that's a very interesting city. Um, and but but look, the, the, one of the points in my book is that we get the geniuses that we want and that we deserve. And that we're only we only get geniuses as good as we want, really, you know. And so, in 18th century Vienna, what did they care about? They really cared about music, what we now call classical music. So they got a Beethoven and a Mozart and a Haydn. What do we care about? We care about these gadgets. We care about digital technology. So who are our geniuses? They are the Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerbergs of the world. Um, and is are, are they a lesser genius than Socrates or Darwin? A, a good case can be made that, yes, that they are lesser, that they're, they're not making the sort of conceptual leaps that, that these greats made in the past. I, I think the very short epigraph in the beginning of my book sort of, in a way, says it all. Uh, and it's from Plato. He said, what is honored in a country will be cultivated there. And that is true. And what do we honor? We honor technology so we get a Silicon Valley and we get a Steve Jobs. It'll be interesting, too, uh, for me to see once we st- do start getting into really hardcore gene editing, <laughs> you know, how that's going to change humanity. But I, I think we're a few decades away from that. Um, but one of the things I found really fascinating about your Silicon Valley conditions is that you notice that, in fact, genius is not about having the best ideas. So how, yeah. how is that possible? Because, in fact, that's never really been true. It wasn't true in Athens. Um, uh, To quote Plato again, he said, what the Greeks borrow from foreigners, they perfect. Well, the fact is that the Athenians in particular were tremendous moochers. Um, They didn't invent statue making. They borrowed that from the Egyptians. They didn't invent mathematics or even theater, but they did perfect it. And I really think in Silicon Valley, not that much was invented there. Not the cell phone, not the concept, the idea of venture capital that came from New York, the cell phone from Illinois. So what does Silicon Valley do that makes it so great? I I think it's good at discernment. I, I do think that 
Um, the venture capitalists don't have a perfect record, but they are, for better or worse, kind of the Medici of the Valley. Uh, and they, they pick and choose what ideas at least have a chance of taking off. So they're discerners. And the second thing it's good at is sort of slotting an idea into a, a creative ecology, a system really, uh, that can fast track it. So ideas aren't born in Silicon Valley for the most part, but they do come of age there. And, and that's important. So I want to remind our listeners that the Geography of Genius, a search for the world's most creative places from ancient Athens to Silicon Valley, is now available at all your favorite booksellers. And I also really appreciated in the book how you talk about what aspects of these places you can try to build in your own home. And so um, you talk about how you want to foster creativity in your daughter. Um, so what things have you changed about the way that you live and the place that you live um, that you think will make your daughter more likely to have a creative life? Well, we've turned the living room into an Athenian agora. Uh, no, we haven't. <laughs> that, that, that's sort of the problem, right? You know, I have to be honest here is how much do we control? You know, um, we're living in this time and place and I, I can't change that for her. But, you know, I have tried to, uh, ad you know, adopt in a way some of these lessons um, you know, one is, uh, if she's stuck on something and she wants to take a break, I'll say, go take a break, go for a walk or, you know, even go watch TV for 10 minutes, you know, because we, we don't just, we, we can't, we're not creative by just furrowing our brow and gritting our teeth until the problem, uh, is solved. Um, I try to introduce some chaos into the household, uh, more than my wife would like, but I do. And I think that's uh, a good thing. And you know, and it it's funny. And, and the problem is that some of these conclusions are really problematic if you're a parent. For instance, the, the conclusion that there's really no direct connection between higher education and creative genius, that so many geniuses were college dropouts, including Steve Jobs and Woody Allen, who failed film class, among other things. Um, but uh, I'm waiting for the day. She hasn't asked yet when my daughter reads the book and and, re and realizes this and asks whether she needs to go to school. And the answer is yes, for the time being. <laughs> so you're not moving to Silicon Valley anytime soon, though? No, but let, let me throw the question back at you. Do you think, uh, since you're right there in the valley or in the edge of it in San Francisco, does it... Um, does it hold up to, to Athens and Florence? What do you think? Well, I don't know about Athens and Florence, but I, I certainly think that for the kinds of choices that I've made in my career, this seems to be the only place in the world where I feel the freedom to do the things that I want to do. I grew up in Canada. I spent a lot of time in LA. I lived in London for a while. And it really wasn't until I came to San Francisco that I felt that it was okay for me to be more along the sort of Renaissance ideal where I can have these dual interests and people are supportive of it. And as long as you, you know, I think work and produce content, you can't, you have to put your money where your mouth is to a certain extent. Um, I feel like there's, there's a much bigger audience and a much bigger support system for what I do here. It doesn't seem so out of the ordinary. You know, when I was at LA, people would be like, you know, you do what? Well, I don't know what box to put you in. And, you know, in Toronto, it was, you know, it was, so, so yeah, I feel, you know, for better or for worse, it's allowed me to do the kinds of things that I do. But I don't know if I would have been more successful in, in you know, narrowing my focus in a different place. Yeah. And I think if Silicon Valley is going to survive in the long term, and you know, let's be honest here, there's no guarantee it will. Um, most of these golden ages last a few decades, half a century, maybe a century, and then poof, they're gone. Um, and, and that could happen to Silicon Valley, especially if it gets a bit arrogant, which I think is always one of the, the big dangers here. Um, I have noticed a bit more bling in the valley, uh, a bit more luxury and ostentatiousness, and that's always a dangerous sign. Um, but for the most part, it's remained fairly grounded and casual uh, and open to the possibility of failure, uh, which is important. So I think if it actually is aware of why other golden ages collapse, it, it might avoid that fate. And I think anyone who's been here for longer than 10 years remembers the last bust. <laughs> so if you're just in the in the boom, I think, you know, you're tempted to spend money and live the bling lifestyle. But uh, for the rest of us, we I, I, I'm I'm waiting for the bubble to burst, especially when it comes to housing. So, um, you know, this is this is probably, you know, too specific to where where we are. Uh, but that's the thing that I, I you know, I, I it's going to even if we have a bust, I don't know that that'll be the end of it. 
Right. There might be a second act. Yeah. Or a third act. <laughs> exactly. Eric Weiner, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thanks, Indre. This was great. So what do you think? Do you think Silicon Valley is a cultivator of genius? So I, I guess I have two reactions. One, I'm probably not a genius. I bet. <laughs> so I think, <laughs> I think I had that feeling going into the interview, though. Uh, two, I... I'm definitely not convinced that uh, Silicon Valley is a cultivating genius, but I do think there is something about the environment that you grow up in that has some sort of subtle influence. Did did you feel that way? Oh yeah, for sure. And I and I you know I think that I guess you know a lot of these things that he talks about, I still am not convinced that there's a real direct relationship between little C creativity, you know, the everyday mm-hmm. creativity, and the big C creativity, and that that sort of was was missing for me, um, and it and I'm still not satisfied that we've been able to kind of bridge that, and that we can we can really show. I mean, you know, yes, statistically, it seems more likely that if you have you know so many more creative thoughts that eventually one of them will be big C creativity. Um, But I'm not sure they're not qualitatively different. And, you know, I think I think he brings up a lot of really interesting points and a lot of really interesting ways to think about how we foster creativity and, you know, how these golden ages are built. But I still am left with this sense that like, yes, a lot of amazing things happen in Silicon Valley. But even though I live next door to it, I still feel like that's not I'm not really, uh, you know, an integral part of that, you know, and and um, so I don't really see how the geography of the place is really, you know, is really tied into it. You don't even buy into like some of those notions that there's an attraction of other geniuses to each other. Oh, I totally think that that's true. Or anyone, in, you know, who's successful and has access to other interesting people. I mean, that I definitely see is the case. You know, the more success you have, the more access you have of people who are equally successful. And as you go up that ladder, you know, of course, Bono's going to hang out with Steve Jobs and, you know, at that top tier. I don't know if they Those are did, your but... two geniuses to go with, Bono and Steve Jobs? Oh, oh that's yeah. a pretty good list. Well, that's not, not the people I'd want to have dinner with, but... Um... Um, in any case, yeah. And the other thing that that made me really wonder, and, and he does touch this on on this in the book, is this notion that yes, it's like you know, openness to new ideas. It's about messiness and chaos and the agora and the marketplace and just bumping into people. And yet, what hasn't worked are these open plan office spaces, right? People find them too distracting. I know. I mean, I work at a university that totally has a number of buildings that have been specifically constructed so that that happens more. Uh And it's especially interesting in the context of science because science spaces can't always be constructed openly Mm -hmm. just because of the nature of the work in there. And it doesn't work. You also can't work your way through it. I can't just be like, oh, 10,000 hours playing this, you know, like working on this issue. And I'm a genius all of a sudden. I, I thought yeah, that I was mean, pretty convincing. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and yeah, and I think that that's where he says that that's a myth. But I guess I don't understand yet why that's a myth you know what i mean i mean i think i think that is true there that there's a luck factor that's involved and yet you know i still feel like yeah i don't know it's all of these things put together so i guess that leaves me with this sense that yeah we've you know creativity is really interesting and genius is is really fun to think about and i agree with him that they are the gods of our generation or are you know especially those of us who are you know more secular than religious that's sort of who we worship um, and yet, at the same time, you know, I, I don't know how much closer we are really at understanding that special sauce. Maybe it's not something we can cultivate. Maybe it's something to enjoy in the moment and not try to create. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's not very scientific. <laughs> but that's it for another episode. So I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Herring Chang, Nick Cadillac, Sean Johnson, and our anonymous supporters. And once again, this week's episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly on to you. To get $50 towards any one of their obsessively engineered mattresses, visit casper.com slash inquiringminds and use promo code inquiringminds. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us on patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your own geography of genius or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. 
Inquiring Minds is produced by Average Joe Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chian. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.